Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. Interview episode on Alexander the Great in Ancient Art and Literature with Meg Finlayson. Hi there, everyone. Today I have with me Meg Finlayson in order to talk about the image and legacy of Alexander the Great. Meg is a recent graduate student, having received a Master's in Classics at the University of Edinburgh and a Master's of Letters in Classics at University of St. Andrews. Her focus has been largely on the image of Alexander the Great in ancient literature and art, having published a dissertation on the Alexander Sarcophagus and its relation to Near Eastern royal iconography. Uh, First off, I'd like to say welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. As an up-and-coming classicist, could you give the audience a brief overview of what led you down the road towards Alexander the Great and the ancient world in general? Yeah, so I've been studying classics in one form or another for about seven years now. So I first fell into classics kind of by accident when I was choosing my A-level options, which in the UK is the last two years of compulsory study when you're about 16 to 18. I didn't really have much of a background in ancient history before then. Um, I think I did one year of Latin in school that was we just kind of had an elderly teacher. And I think it was a bit of a favor to her to tick her over to retirement. So nobody really took it very seriously. Uh, But when it came to choosing my options, I originally wanted to do something very different. I was quite interested in Russian history. Um, And I was quite good at Spanish as a language, so I thought I would just continue that on. But unfortunately, that didn't work out with the other options I'd chosen for my timetable. So the admin kind of sat me down and said, oh, you're going to have to choose something else. So I thought about it and just asked, well, what do you have that is the closest thing to history? And they said, well, the guy who teaches history also teaches this other subject called classics. So I thought, okay, just put me in that. Sounds fair enough. Uh, And I wasn't anticipating it to really go anywhere. But when I started um, studying for this class, I started reading the text and, you know, participating in the lessons. Something about classics just really struck me and something about the story of Alexander and the work that we were doing on the ancient sources, Arian, Plutarch, all the big, all the greats, uh, just really stuck with me. And it kind of set me on this path to choosing to do classics at university choosing to pursue my master's degrees um, and it's taken me all the way up now to applying for PhD places so it's been quite a journey sort of started off by accident so thank you to the lovely admin team at the school who put me on this path. So the life of Alexander the Great or more specifically his campaigns against the Persian Empire is arguably one of the most documented events in the ancient world and subject to countless biographies and writings from authors both ancient and modern but almost nothing composed within Alexander's lifetime survives and we have to rely on the secondhand retellings of memoirs and biographies that have since since lost to the passage of time. How was the legend of Alexander being crafted both during and immediately following his reign? What sort of work do we have to do when trying to sort between fact and fiction of what authors like Plutarch and Arian tells us, or is the legend all we really have? I find the historiography of Alexander the Great, so even not so much the events that happened, more so the way that these events are recorded and written, to me that's really one of the most interesting things about Alexander, because as you say, nothing that we really have that is dated to, contemporaneous to his lifetime survives. I think the earliest um, sources we have are for uh, Roman things that are written perhaps, you know, 300 years after his death. That's quite a long gap. And a lot happened in those 300 years in terms of Alexander's legacy, his life, 
life, the way that his image was changed, and the way that he became known and spoken about in the Greek world and then into the Roman um, era and the Roman, um, you know, empire. So these sources present to us really an image of Alexander, but it's really an image of, I guess, the Roman Alexander in a sense. It's not necessarily Alexander as he acted, behaved, and was thought of during his lifetime. It's this almost a snapshot of Alexander as he was recorded and believed to have been some 300 years later. So the source tradition is, it's very complex. We have a number of historians whose works survive mostly intact. You've got a nice biography by Plutarch. Plutarch also talks about Alexander in a couple of his other essays and work. Uh, we have Arian, whose Anabasis is one of the longest and most complete accounts of Alexander's work. And then we have other historians like Diodorus, who wrote on Alexander as part of a wider history. You have Curtius, who wrote his own version of Alexander. And then you have things like Justin, who again was writing part on Alexander as part of a wider history and various bits and pieces and fragments of history that survives. So on the surface, it seems as though we have quite a wealth of information to do with Alexander. We have multiple authors that survive in fairly good conditions and some fragmentary evidence. But when you kind of start to read and delve into it a little bit more, some of these histories are contradictory in part. They're very complex. They make up different things. They attribute different names and different actions, different motivations to things that he does. So and almost you can imagine there's like a massive cork board and you're putting in different pieces like oh well Arian said this but Plutarch said this and when you try and compare them all like that you kind of ended up it's a bit of a tangled mess this kind of literary legacy of Alexander the Great but I still think there's something quite interesting in there that is worth talking about and worth researching it tells us a lot about how Alexander was perceived it tells us a lot about how history writing at that time was evolving and becoming a more complex genre than what we consider history today. So something that I looked at for my undergraduate dissertation was these the artifice in these literary portraits. So when you read the account by Arian, for example, Aaron quite explicitly in the beginning of, of his work says, you know, I wish to be the Homer to Alexander's Achilles. So he's not just wanting to write a book that is something that is factual. He also wants to write something that is entertaining, something that will be preserved by posterity as a work of great literary merit as well as something that is informative. We tend to say that Arian is the best of the sources. He tends to be the one who cites where he got his information from. So even though we don't have these original works, we know that there were a number of works, a wealth of works written about Alexander by people who knew him in his lifetime. So supposedly there's the work of um, Callisthenes, who was one of the court historians. And we know that um, Ptolemy, King Ptolemy I, or the Pharaoh of Egypt, also wrote a history based on his own experience being on campaign with Alexander. And we know these existed at one point because we have various authors such as Arian, and I think perhaps um, Curtis also mentions the, the existence of these, and they cite these as being the sources or inspiration for their own work. So we know that grains of truth and aspects of truth are being preserved through these ancient um, sources. So they do have some merit, but it's always worth keeping in mind when you read them that what you're looking at is as much a literary portrait as it is a true history. So especially with um, Plutarch and Curtius, they're writing not just about Alexander as a historical figure, but they're also trying to tell a sort of a morality tale at the same time. So Plutarch is, you know, he's renowned for being a biographer, not a historian. He's very much concerned with character as much as he is concerned about writing down what really happened. So when he's telling us about Alexander and 
some of the things that happened later in his in his life in his reign and um, particularly his his murder of his friend Clytus the Black. Plutarch describes to us how he kind of is overcome with this madness or he's kind of overcome with this horror and he kind of calls out and blames Dionysus for this terrible event. It's not just that he's, you know, you imagine the real life Alexander was blaming the gods for his actions, but Plutarch is sort of sowing this seed and creating this idea of Alexander as almost a motif of what can happen if you indulge too much in drink, if you kind of get too too drunk and lose control of your actions. It's almost a morality tale in a sense. So the histories are a little bit complicated when you first approach them because you're not quite sure how to, what to make of them really. Because on the one hand you think, well, these are ancient sources. It's the best we have. Are they being 100% factual? And then you can kind of ping the other way and go, well, no, we're looking at things that were written centuries afterwards. There's all these set pieces, all these kind of outlandish anecdotes that I really don't think happen. Um, when you, especially for some of the sources in um, Curtius, he writes about quite a few of the more salacious details, I suppose. You would imagine that that's probably the equivalent of the tabloid coverage, maybe. So it's quite easy to ping the other way and say, well, actually, they're not that useful at all. We don't really know what the real Alexander is like. How could we possibly, when what we're looking at has been so finely constructed and it's based in so many things it's based in 300 years of changing literary traditions and historical perceptions but I think the the answer as always really lies somewhere in between the two so perhaps we can never reconstruct an accurate image of Alexander the Great based on these histories because these histories are constructing a character of Alexander almost it's not taken from eyewitness accounts it's kind of eyewitness accounts plus a little bit of literary flourish so perhaps that's a detriment if you're looking to kind of know the real man but if you want to know a bit about Alexander as much as you can know in terms of the things that he was recorded as having done the way he did them and the way people thought about him in the ancient world I think that our source tradition is is very useful for that but there's always just a little bit of care a little bit of a grain of salt that needs to be taken when you read some of the more you know outlandish and exciting stories. I think that certainly with any sort of source, uh, I mean, you're supposed to take a critical eye towards whatever you're reading when you're applying to history. But I think with Alexander's case, which is so interesting is that each one you read, like you mentioned, is that is uh, sort of a, a thought exercise where uh, Quintus Curtius feels more like a Suetonius in the time of Tiberius and or the court politics of Tiberius, rather. And meanwhile, Plutarch is this person, which I always like this quote, uh, I'm stealing from another uh, historian, if it isn't true, it ought to be where it's this, it fits to that idea of, well, Alexander probably would have said something like this, but it is really astonishing when you try to go through these sources and you're like, each one is telling this own tale, even though they may have not had like a direct connection where they're like trying to lionize or to fit the character of Alexander to their own needs, uh, even the sources that they built on like Ptolemy or uh, Hieronymus of Cardia has some writings on Alexander and Callisthenes in this case, they all had their own niches that they were filling at the time where Ptolemy is deriving his entire legitimacy from the Met legacy of Alexander. Callisthenes was a court historian, so something of a sycophant in some extent, and uh, other ones could be intensely hostile to them. So I, I, I think that uh, part of my favorite stuff with Alexander is just trying to dissect each work and seeing what is each source's version of Alexander and how we try to composite 10 different Alexanders into one universal being. But then inevitably enough, each interpretation of those interpretations has created a, a, an ever spiraling mess and web of, of visuals like from Tarn's Brotherhood of Mankind to uh, Green's more sarcastic take on Alexander or even Bosworth's more negative conquering tyrant sort of figure. So it's always it's always a fun treat to kind of 
just talk about Arian and Plutarch and see how they compare to the rest of them. Yeah, definitely. I think that that's the the beauty and the frustration of of studying Alexander is you is you have to kind of wrangle with all these different versions because as you picked up, you know, Tarn's Brotherhood of Mankind, this kind of very gentle, sensitive, almost scholarly Alexander is, you know, so far apart from, you know, some of the rebuttals to that, you know, Ernst Badian's Alexander is is somewhat of a, a dictator, a terrible, you know, bloodthirsty tyrant. And it's hard to kind of read these two um, different portraits of Alexander and think, wow, are they really coming from the same place they've almost veered off in totally opposite directions but ultimately they are reconcilable with the ancient treatment of Alexander because even that was so fragmented and different so I think that there's a really um good quote that I I've read in a, in a paper that I cannot remember the name of unfortunately but I think the general gist of it was that the reason why Alexander has been this subject of perennial fascination is because nobody can quite work out whether he's the good guy or the bad guy, you know, we all like to kind of look at our figures from history and think, okay, how do we how do we relate to this person? How do we place them into how we understand the world? And there's something quite elusive about Alexander where all these different versions of him where he is the hero, but he's also the villain. They all exist at the same time in the same framework, sort of almost complementary to each other as much as they are contrasting. And I think that's one of the most interesting things about, about studying him as a figure and as a cultural phenomenon. Uh, speaking of heroes, uh, after his death, and even within his own lifetime, Alexander underwent an apotheosis and essentially became a demigod in the same mold as his ancestral idols like Heracles and Achilles in the eyes of his Macedonian subjects and peers. Was the perception of Alexander as a heroic archetype universal throughout the Hellenistic and Roman world? I think it very much depends on who you would be asking. I mean, Alexander as the Macedonian conqueror was quite deeply unpopular in certain places within the Greek world. So um, Demosthenes, who was the famous Athenian orator, was um, famously against the Macedonians and their conquering of, of Greek territories and kind of them establishing themselves as the head honchos in this in the Greek world. So I think if you would have asked the Athenians uh, how they would have felt about um, Alexander's legacy as kind of being almost the best of the Greeks, the epitome of, of Greek culture, you know, the founder of this great Hellenistic age, I think they probably would have been uh, horrified. I think I know they would have been horrified. Similarly, if you've asked, I suppose, the people of Thebes, the ones that were left, they probably would have found him to be horrific. So I think when we think of Alexander, I think a lot of our, our modern understanding is that we think, oh, well, he must have been the hero of the classical world. He's the one who, you know, brought Greek civilization to all these different places. He achieved all these fantastic things under the Greek name. You know, he they must have adored him, which I think is very... Um, very much not the case if you were to have asked certain people in certain places in the Greek world, but certainly in terms of his perception during the Hellenistic age, I think it was very useful to um, successors to create him this persona of him being a, a you know a demigod, somebody who achieved godhood status through his through his actions and deeds, because it was through their association with Alexander, it was them aligning him themselves with Alexander that gave themselves their own claim to legitimacy in their own power boost in a sense because Alexander died without a viable heir you know his his son Alexander the fourth was born posthumously but was was killed as a as a as a boy so he could never really have this official claim to Alexander's lineage but somebody had to lay claim to it right so that's where you have all the different successors kind of using Alexander's image in certain ways I'm sure we'll get to discuss some of the brilliant coin portraits that he crops up on from the Hellenistic age but then you have you you know 
know, you have examples of Ptolemy literally hijacking Alexander's body. So there is, there's no greater claim to, to kinship and lineage than being in physical possession of that body, right? So as a symbol and as a status symbol and almost as a bargaining chip to try and fill this power vacuum, it really does benefit the successors and those who are trying to piggyback off his, you know, his image and the acquisition of power to make him as, as grandiose as possible. If you can elevate into a godhood status, it's almost not that strange that you're then claiming a descent from him. It may not be a literal genealogy descent, but it's a descent in ideology, perhaps. You know, you're, you're the carrying on his legacy, you're carrying on his thoughts of empire, and that is what makes you worthy to succeed him and worthy of possessing these um, territories. And certainly by the time we get to the Roman world, so by the time of the, of the late Republic, certainly when the Romans have kind of reconciled their position in the world with this new Greek background as they come into new contact with the Greek world, you know, Alexander as, as a paradigm and as an exemplar would never have existed in the Roman imagination before they engaged in their own conquest of the Hellenistic world. So by the time we get to the late Republic, he's definitely an exemplar of heroism and perhaps not as a king because the Romans had a very complex relationship with, with kingship and with, you know, aligning themselves with kings, but certainly as a general and as somebody who is the exemplar of military might and power, he's someone that prominent Roman people were, were aiming to emulate. There's, you know, the famous anecdote of Julius Caesar who sees a statue of Alexander and then begins to weep because oh my goodness he had he had accumulated and done so much in his lifetime and he's dead and I'm you know that age now and I've done very little so you know that there is definitely the idea that Romans were trying to establish a connection between themselves and Alexander as an example of military might um, especially with Pompey Pompey Magnus which again Magnus is the great which I think was, was a moniker that Alexander originally got in, in the Roman world so the Greeks didn't call him Alexander the Great that was a, a Roman moniker Alexander Magnus and so Pompey is you know taking this nickname which was um allegedly a bit of a joke with people teasing him saying oh he thinks he's so wonderful he thinks he's Pompey the Great and he kind of said oh you know what I like the sound of that and he you know took that on for himself and you see it in some of their images as well there's a fantastic head of Pompey it's not quite a bust it's a, it's a sculpted head and you see he's kind of got a typical Roman face which is you know quite lined quite austere looking like a typical elder Roman man that is sort of commanding power in a very Roman way but then when you look at his hair he's kind of got this rather foppish boy hair with this um this cowlick and at first you think well that's a bit of a looks like he's just rolled out of bed but it's it's quite a deliberate allusion to some of Alexander's most famous portraits where Alexander's hair is one of his defining characteristics so the Romans are taking on not only kind of him in name but also him in in vision because that's the visual language of, of power and good generalship so certainly for the Hellenistic and Roman world he does exist as this paradigm of good generalship as a hero who you can emulate if those are aspects that you want to bring into your own persona aspects that benefit you and your own you know military ambitions now connecting to the previous question uh, how is alexander seen in cultures outside of the greco-roman tradition there is of course the famous romance of alexander that was extremely popular throughout both medieval europe and the middle east but did each culture place an emphasis on different virtues and vices for alexander 
Yeah, definitely. One of the most exciting things about Alexander is this is this change he he sort of undergoes and how he becomes an example of many different sectors that you previously wouldn't have associated with him. So just to pick up on on the medieval Europe thing to start with, I'm I'm not a medievalist, so I haven't researched this extensively, but I have looked into it a bit. And there are some absolutely fantastic um, medieval images of Alexander and it's of Alexander as the great explorer he becomes the ultimate explorer in a sense there's some brilliant um pictures of him in these beautiful medieval um I think they're paintings or perhaps they're images from from larger books or scrolls and he's kind of accompanied by all this great fanfare all these great people and he's doing marvelous things as there's, there's examples of him battling dragons um my personal favorite motif is Alexander as this underwater explorer he's kind of in what looks like a rudimentary form of a submarine it looks a bit like a like a glass jar with rope on either side and he's being kind of put down into the seabed um and it's fantastic you look within this little glass jar and there's a little little fellow with a crown that we we believe is alexander so in the in the medieval imagination he's not just really a conqueror he's not just a king he you know he becomes this great explorer he also becomes associated with medicine and healing because he's gone to all of these different places and he's picked up all of this knowledge um, a lot of that kind of comes from Alexander in the in the biblical tradition. So Alexander's kind of mentioned a little bit in the Bible, but there's the idea that he was kind of searching for for the water of life, for eternal life, and that that's why you see him in these little little submarine-like things searching. So the medieval Alexander is is really a fascinating character because he has evolved so far past his Hellenistic and, and Roman origins. I think they would never have conceived of putting him in a glass jar and putting him under the water, but every era kind of casts Alexander in what is most pertinent to them. So definitely the medieval era, exploration, discovery, you know, science, knowledge acquisition is something that's quite important. And so that's something that they pick up on and they attribute to Alexander. Alexander in the, in the Middle East and in, in Persian culture is, is something that's also very interesting. There's kind of two um, traditions that preserve the story of Alexander in, in Middle Eastern culture. You've got on the one side is their version of the Alexander romance. So that came into um, Persian tradition through the Greek um, via the Syriac translations. And that preserves quite a positive spin and quite a positive outlook on Alexander. So in this version, they've almost concocted a new lineage for Alexander. So in the Persian version of this Alexander romance, romance. He is allegedly the illegitimate son of King Darius II. He's the son of King Darius II and a daughter of Philip of Macedon, I believe, who was, you know, not, not accepted by the Persian king, sent back to live in Macedon, and then eventually comes back to almost, in this story, reconquer his own birthright in a sense. It's In this version, that would make him sort of a half-brother to Darius III. So almost Alexander's conquering of, of the Persian world, if you follow this tradition, is, is sort of a justified almost reclaiming of a birthright. They don't want to view Alexander as a conquering outsider, more as almost like a returning one of their own, almost. Um, which is quite a difficult thing to to kind of reconcile when you think about it, when you think that, well, I mean, he came and he conquered Persia, he destroyed a lot of their great cultural icons, you know, caused irrevocable damage to a lot of the Persian statehood, and yet here they are reconstructing him as almost being one of their own. But I think when you put that against the background of what Alexander did and what his character was becoming, it's very difficult to cast him as a villain and as a bad guy because he was so successful. You know, people like to think that good people succeed and that... 
evil people ultimately have their comeuppance. And although Alexander died, you know, young of in you know somewhat mysterious circumstances, I don't think you can really view that as a as a comeuppance. So perhaps that's why they're trying to recast the story a little bit. Um, but the other tradition, it comes through the Zoroastrian tradition so the ancient kind of religious texts of of Persia and they preserve him as you know being an out and out bad guy you know he comes to Persia he destroys the temple of Persepolis which was an important part of Persian culture especially Zoroastrian religion so he's almost like he he he's the death bringer he's he's the destructor and that's a very negative um spin but you kind of have both of these traditions existing kind of at the same time, just through different um, origins. So one is brought into the Persian mainstream through through the Greek and the Syriac translations of the original romance. And the other is this preservation of kind of this more religious understanding of Alexander. But you do see um, poets later on in and around Persia who are writing about Alexander with a positive spin. You know, he's Ixander, he's, a, he's an important figure for them also. And they've changed and reconstructed him to something that has more, more relevance for them, but it's definitely interesting how these two two strands, these two polar opposite depictions of him are kind of preserved and brought into the Persian imagination through different sources. Moving away from the literary presentation of Alexander, it is harder to think of a historical figure that has been represented in sculptures, mosaics, and coinage more than Alexander himself. But how can we identify Alexander as Alexander? Are there any particular motifs or themes that are shared between his depictions or some unusual cases that stand out to you? He's definitely got a, a very noticeable face and very noticeable symbols and attributes. When you look at the sculptures of Alexander, one of the things that is most um, unusual about him, and I guess one of the innovations which he's responsible for, is how he kind of changed up the visual language of kingship. So prior to Alexander in the Greek imagination, a king was certainly somebody who was a mature individual. A king was certainly somebody who was bearded, if not in real life, hopefully you'd be able to grow a beard. If not in real life, you would at least be depicted with a beard. When you look at figures who are related to kingship, uh, you know, kingship and fatherhood kind of go hand in hand almost. If you're not the father of your own children, you're at least the father of that city state, they'll be all the head of state. So depictions of Zeus, for example, who's supposed to be king of the gods, as well as being the premier god, he's always depicted bearded. So are many of the other kind of premier you know, godly and kingly figures to be bearded was one of the main things that denoted masculine power. But when it comes to to Alexander, this, you know, this prototype, this archetype just, it just isn't useful for him. He comes to power at the age of 20. He's only 20 years old when he becomes king. And this is, he's really not even out of this youthhood yet. So the Greeks had their understanding of this youthfulness is almost a different life stage. You're a child, you're a youth, and then you're finally a man. And at 20 years old, he really is not a man by any stretch of the imagination for what they would consider to be the best guy to be their king, their man. So he has to kind of rethink and rejig the, what makes the visual language of kingship. For him, the, beard, the beardfulness is not going to work. So he kind of deliberately makes this adjustment where he starts to adopt looks that are more suited to athletes or divine beings. So younger divinities in the Greek pantheon, such as Apollo, such as Dionysus, would have gone um, without beards. They would have been clean shaven and this is the image that Alexander chooses to adopt rather than going for a mature look he chooses throughout his lifetime to maintain quite a youthful image and you see this in all of his portraits you see this in him in coins you see this in him um 
for uh, mosaics, you see this for um, statues and sculpture, and presumably for paintings, even though we don't have any um, existing paintings. And it's a very deliberate choice because he's making allusions to divinity with this eternal youthfulness. And you see this also in his hair. So again, when you think of a king, you don't think of long hair necessarily. You think of, you know, a standard kind of, not quite crop military hair, but certainly something that was a lot more sensible to an extent. When it comes to Alexander, he starts to depict himself having this longer hair, you know, down to the back of his neck, um, quite full, quite voluminous with a, um, what is called like an anastole, so a bit like a cowlick, it's this kind of hair lifted up from the forehead. And so his hair is always quite, quite big, quite textured. And that's really one of the calling cards of Alexander is does he have this, this anastole, this bit of hair. And again, the, the long hair and the beardlessness, these are all traits that, you know, previously in, in classical Greek iconography is reserved for uh, you know, younger gods. So Apollo, Dionysus, Hermes sometimes. Uh, it's reserved for athletes. And it can also sometimes have negative connotations. So if you're an so if you're a man, an aging man out of the youthhood bracket and you're still maintaining long hair and clean shavedness, that could be interpreted as being passive homosexuality, which is at the time not a good thing if you're trying to be a king. But with Alexander, he takes these images and they become the visual language of kingship. And this persists for long after Alexander, you know, the days of the beard is a symbol of masculine power and kingship are now gone. So even his successors who, I mean, Ptolemy got to a grand old age, even when you look at his coins, although his hair isn't quite as long and it doesn't quite have the same mobility with the anastole, he's still depicting himself clean shaven. Um, the same for all the other successors who put themselves on their coins. There are always some differences in these coin portraits where you can see individualized features. So the coins of Demetrius Polyorchites, who's a sort of a successor of the next generation, he maintains this beardlessness and this, this hair, not quite as long, but that has really become the new, the new normal, the new um, standard for kings and really that persists all the way through the Roman era you know you very rarely see Roman um, statesmen with beards Roman emperors as well and when we get to Augustus also Augustus really picks up on this eternal youthfulness as the ultimate symbol of of power Augustus would never be called himself a king but he's certainly the premier person in Rome and his you know his statue program for his entire life depicts him as a youth and this is something that he really is kind of picking up from this exemplar of Alexander. And a good example of this that I, I like to think of is, is the Alexander mosaic. So this is the very large, quite famous um, mosaic that was found in Pompeii. And it depicts Alexander on one side in the middle of battle with um, Darius III on the other side. Um, and in it, you can see quite a detailed portrait of Alexander in profile. And you can see he's kind of got this dark hair kind of behind him. There's a lot of motion. It's, it's a battle scene, so it's quite dynamic, this picture. But when you sort of look closely and examine his face, you can see that he's completely bare-cheeked and bare-chinned. He's clean-shaven. But then when you see his profile, you can see he's got quite prominent sideburns. So it, there's a lot to unpack there because what it suggests to us, what the artist is trying to create here, this image, which is supposedly, um, the mosaic is dated from around, I think it's first century, whereas it was based supposedly on, on, uh, on a much earlier painting, which no longer survives, but it's based on an earlier tradition of artwork to do with Alexander the Great. It, it's a Roman copy. And what the artist is getting across here is that Alexander is, is purposely clean shaven. You know, he's not 
it's not that he's too young it's not that he's too inexperienced it's not that he's not a mature man who cannot grow facial hair he's making this a deliberate choice because he has these prominent sideburns suggesting to us that he is a fully grown man he's a masculine man he could grow a beard if he wanted to but this allusion to divinity this change has been a deliberate choice that he's kind of taken control of so the beardlessness the very textured very mobile hair with this anastole are all sort of calling cards of Alexander's portrait in, you know, the Hellenistic age and onwards. These are things, these are part of his image that have been um, maintained. Other things that you see a lot in his portraits, you see kind of this slightly parted lips in a lot of his sculpture. And often his head is kind of tilted to the side or slightly slightly bent neck. Um, and in, in Plutarch, I believe Plutarch gives us a detailed description of what Alexander looks like. There are some literary descriptions of what Alexander looks like but again these kind of need to be taken with a grain of salt I think there's a description in Alien that describes what he looks like um, but at the same time it also says that he had fang-like teeth and Plutarch also said that he had a natural sweet smell because he was descended from divinity so all of these portraits and the literary descriptions you can kind of take hand in hand but they're worth again taking with a pinch of salt because these descriptions of his physicality may not be a hundred percent to the mark Plutarch does tell us that he kept his hair long and that he potentially had a, a turn in his neck a kind of twist in his neck which you know some modern scholars have tried to diagnose him with various medical conditions based on the twist of this neck whether he had torticollis or or something like that that is one suggestion I think that's kind of unlikely because he was very he was known to be very prominent in battle and when you read a bit more about torticollis it causes all sorts of you know mobility issues and he never kind of seems to have those issues in 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 fighting but there's another interpretation that you know that this twist of the head this slightly bent neck is is more to do with him sort of his gaze being outwards but always looked off slightly to the side it's sort of a physical manifestation of his desire for travel and for conquest that he's always kind of slightly looking out into the horizon for where is he going to do next what is he going to do next so if you see a portrait and it's got all of these aspects you know the clean shaven this mobile hair with the anastole you know head slightly bent mouth slightly parted you'll generally hopefully looking at what is supposed to be an image of Alexander the Great. Those are his most kind of defining visual features. I think one of my favorite undercurrents of the Alexandrian image is how even people at the time were kind of self-aware when it was being presented to them as such, where I believe is, I think it's the quote from the life of Demetrius from Plutarch, where they make mention how these old men, referring to the Diadohoi, are like, uh, or something we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, where, you know, they're, they're in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and they're getting a little flabby, but they're still maintaining that youthful, vigorous look of the upturned head and... And even, well, at least from Plutarch's perspective, people are kind of like this, is like kind of mocking it to some extent because they know how absurd it looks given that the nature of Alexander and that eternal youthfulness. But then even men in there who have probably missing quite a few of their teeth and quite a, a little bit bald are still trying to cast that image. And even with uh, cases with uh, non-Greeks or I guess of Hellenized uh, non-Greeks, you have Mithridates who has, I think is one of his best coinage is like his hair is not only long, it's just, it's like blowing in the wind. It's going, it's like sweat 
back. And I think it's interesting how they consciously know these decisions. They make them anyways, just because of that nature that is connected to Alexander. And I think uh, there was actually a um, an interesting, uh, some one of my uh, listeners reached out to me and asked specifically if information for an article they were working on, on the apopotropaic usage of Alexander's image. And I think even in late antiquity, there's a reference from, I believe, I'm not sure if you actually provided this to me, was uh, John Chrysostom, uh, or, or uh, if I believe that's the author's name, how he referenced how people in the third century, fourth century AD were taking images of Alexander, whether in coinage, and using it as magical talismans. So it's amazing to see how like, this image just transcends even like, uh, it transcends the normalcy of life and kind of turns into this divine status, like a, like a talisman or like a symbolic representation of power. Hmm. I, I don't find that surprising. I mean, it's the apotropaic nature of, of certain images is, is quite powerful and it, it almost doesn't matter what the original intention was. It's how people choose to construe it later down the line. Again, going back to the Alexander um, mosaic, if you look closely on, on his breastplate, Alexander himself is wearing an apotropaic image of Medusa on his on his armor looking outwards. So I'm not surprised that he himself becomes this, this apotropaic image of kind of warding off you know, badness, because, you know, who better do you want on your side than Alexander the Great, I suppose, if you need a symbol of um, power and protection, he seemed to do quite well for himself, right up until he didn't, I suppose. So I guess to kind of focus on one example, uh, one of the most famous pieces of ancient art with Alexander as its focus is the Alexander sarcophagus, which is currently housed in the Istanbul Archaeology Museum and shows the Macedonian king atop of his loyal Mount Bucephalus battling against the Persians. Could you speak about your work on the sarcophagus and maybe how it informs us of the perception of Alexander the Great within his own time? Yeah, I mean, the, the Alexander sarcophagus, I mean, it should really be the so-called Alexander sarcophagus. It's it's definitely not the sarcophagus of Alexander, which is an interesting thing, because when you first see it, you think, wow, this, you know, it's so amazing. I wonder who could possibly be here. But, you know, in, in my research, I kind of, I go for the theory that it doesn't belong to Alexander. It belongs to um, this guy, Abdalonymus of Sidon, who was the final king of Sidon, which is on the Phoenician coast, almost near Tyre. And he was installed by Alexander as a client king of that area. So he owed a lot of his success. He owed his position to Alexander in a sense. Um, and that may be why Alexander features so prominently on this sarcophagus that doesn't actually belong to Alexander himself. It belongs to the this Phoenician king. Um, but the Alexander sarcophagus is, is one of my favorite artifacts from the whole of antiquity, I think. It is such an interesting example of royal iconography and particularly how royal iconography changed during this neo-colonial landscape of Alexander's conquest. Because on the one hand, you have this area of Phoenicia that has been, you know, under conquest of the Persians for a, a very long time. And then rather than being liberated, I think that's something that a lot of people say about Alexander, that he liberated these places, which is, you know, quite, quite a difficult statement to make and quite a difficult statement to reconcile because, you know, any form of conquering isn't really a liberation. But, you know, this area has been under conquest by one great empire. And then all of a sudden there's quite a bloody battle quite a bloody war and they're suddenly under conquest by another very different empire that has very different you know cultural markers for kingship very different norms of royal iconography and so how do you as a king in this place, a king who has, you know, Persian background, potentially Persian ancestry, but now you owe your position to this, you know, Greek Macedonian king. How do you now establish yourself? How do you create your own royal iconography in a way that kind of 
very delicately treads the balance of this new colonial landscape, you know, this, this new world. And it's from that that this Alexander sarcophagus emerges. It's an absolutely stunning, spectacular piece of craftsmanship. It's likely coming from a Rhodian workshop from um, Greek artisans who are commissioned to create this beautiful thing. Um, generally, it's believed to have been commissioned uh, when Alexander was still alive. So we're looking perhaps in the 20s BCE. Uh, it's not known when Abdelonymous died. There's some speculation he died around 306, but we know that he was definitely alive um, to see out Alexander's reign and that this sarcophagus was likely commissioned and designed while he was still, you know, a friend to Alexander, while he was still in Alexander's circle. And it's so very interesting that a lot of people focus on this image of Alexander. I think that's potentially testament to the Alexander bias that exists in a lot of scholarship pertaining to the time period and place, which is almost a naturally arising problem, is that he's kind of almost this personality vacuum where anybody else who tends to try and exist around him just gets sucked in. You know, think about how people have much less regard for the prominent generals around him while he was still alive. And it's only when he disappears that they kind of have a chance at the limelight when in any other circumstance, you know, these successes would be worthy of a million biopics and studies in their own right. Um, but this beautiful Alexander sarcophagus is, is so called the Alexander sarcophagus because on one panel there is a figure who people very strongly identify with Alexander and this is on the basis of what appears to be a helmet of Heracles. So Heracles, the great Greek hero, was an important figure in Alexander's life and in the life of um, Macedonian rulers previous to him. So a lot of the Macedonian Argead line, which is um, Alexander's line, Philip II's line, traced their ancestry back to a son of Heracles. And because of that, Heracles and his iconography featured quite prominently in um, Argead royal iconography. So in their coinage, for example, you may see the club of Heracles or you may see the portrait of Heracles wearing this helmet. But on the Alexander sarcophagus, we have Alexander the individual. We know it's likely to be him. It's not an image of the Heracles, and yet he's dressed up in the guise of Heracles. And this is a very interesting thing, because prior to this, you don't really get kings outwardly masquerading themselves in the guise of heroes. But we have some literary evidence in the form of fragments from Athenaeus, who writes and tells us that towards the end of Alexander's life, he did start masquerading as great Greek heroes such as Heracles, and that he wore this imitation um, lion's cap. There's um, other fragments that suggest that he would dress up as Dionysus during drinking parties while out in India. Some that suggest that he would dress up as Artemis to go hunting on chariots, which um, there's some suggestion that this is maybe a misconstruction of the original and that he may not have been dressing up as Artemis. He may have just been imitating Persian kingly garb, which to a Greek audience may look slightly like a, a feminized robe. And that's maybe where this conflation happens. But there's sort of fragmentary evidence to suggest that he does start dressing in the guise of heroes. And then this image on the Alexander sarcophagus just kind of cements that and nails that down, that he may have been known to have been dressed as Heracles, especially during um, hunts and during kind of these moments where he would be socializing with his, not his peers, but the people that he had surrounded himself with, whether this was his generals, whether this was client kings with which he was building a positive relationship. So in order to identify Alexander on his sarcophagus, Abdelonymous is choosing this image of Alexander as Heracles, which is 
so interesting to to look at and consider that that is how this Macedonian king is being identified is he's being identified by virtue of Heracles if he did not have this um this lion's hat on how would we know it was Alexander you know we could go with the with the hairstyle with something like that there's another panel as well where people um think that this may be Alexander depicted again only this time in battle and that this time he's not wearing um the cap but that he is in part of this battle scene that there's uh four freezes of it there's two long sides and two short sides if you imagine sort of a rectangular sarcophagus and they follow two themes so you have the hunting theme of which there is a long side and a short side each and then you have this theme of battle of which there's a long side and a short side and a lot of talk about the Alexander sarcophagus is kind of focused on how it is such a beautiful example of artwork it's absolutely exquisite to look at the craftsmanship is beautiful the figures are so beautifully carved they're they're in relief but there's it's so highly detailed and fine relief it's almost as if they look like freestanding sculptures because they protrude so far out some of the coloring the original paint is still visible on it it's a beautifully well-preserved thing but a lot of it kind of doesn't really go too much into investigating what this visual program really means when I was researching it's on Alexander Sarkovskis a lot of prominent authors who mention it it gets mentioned a lot in sort of these handbooks of great Hellenistic artwork but there's not so much an exploration of what its themes mean there's this line that says you know well it's a bit of a complex artifact because it's quite contradictory you know on the one side you have Greeks and Persians battling each other and they're identified as Greeks and Persians by virtue of their clothing you know the Greeks are in these wonderful pieces of armor the Persians are in um, wonderful cloth dressed you can look at the cloth and you can see the beautiful texture of it to sort of know what it would look like and you can identify them as being Persians through that and whereas on the other side in the um hunt sorry in yeah in the hunting scenes you have Greeks and Persians working together but they are still maintaining their same cultural signifiers so the Greeks are still dressed up as if they would be if they were uh, you know Greeks the Persians still look like Persians so we're definitely meant to see these two types of people as being the same just in one side of the freeze one long and short side they're battling each other and on the other they're working in collaboration and it definitely gives you an interesting insight into perhaps what you know Abdalonymus as this client king in Phoenicia he's kind of treading the line and trying to juggle these two cultural backgrounds on the one hand you have the existing Persian culture which has been dominant for a long time and now you have this new incoming Greek culture which has been dominant for a long time and how do you reconcile these two ways together in a visual program that is pleasing and understandable to both your Greek and your Persian audience you know the the incoming Greeks are not going to eradicate the Persians overnight so you still have to have a way of appealing to both sides of the population you know the population of Sidon at this time you would have had Phoenicians you would have had Greeks and you would have had Persians and as a king what this sarcophagus suggests is that Abdelonis is trying to blend these cultures and these traditions together and present a unified program he's meant to kind of put himself into this great historic tradition because there is an image of uh, what looks like a Persian but again there's some debate over whether the clothing should be interpreted as being strictly Persian or simply representing an other. Something interesting about the Alexander um, sarcophagus is how people have tended to try and read it as a historicizing monument so try to read it as depicting a moment with historical you know accuracy but when you kind of look at it again it's very difficult to read it through those terms because some of the figures 
are uh, nude, some of the figures are clothed, and there seems to be a blending not only of cultural traditions with the Greek and the Persian costume, but it's also a blending of the, um, you know, the real, the reality with this kind of pseudo-mythologized landscape. So we've got figures who are nude, who are probably heroic, and yet we also have figures who are mortal, and they're all kind of working together. So it's a mixed bag of these ideas of these different motifs, but it has kind of one connecting line, which is that they went from a period of conflict. So you've got the, uh, the Greco-Macedonians and the, the Persians or Eastern troops fighting against each other. So we have conflict, but then it comes around to reconciliation through this hunting scene. And, you know, hunting and battle are symbolically linked. You know, the, the hunt and the battle in all the way back to kind of Homeric motifs, a lot of the battles will feature hunting similes with prey animals and predator animals. So the idea of the hunt being symbolically and thematically linked to, to battle is, is well established in, in you know, Greek tradition, Greek culture. So it's following on with that motif, but it's showing how we've gone from combative to collaborative you know, for what purpose could this possibly be? You know, what is he trying to present? Well, if you think that you are a client king of this of this period, of this particular place, which is quite a um, tumultuous place, if you think about what happened to Tyre, which is quite near to Sidon, and what happened when they went against Alexander, they were, you know, very brutally attacked and, you know, suffered quite a terrible fate at the hands of Alexander for their lack of compliance. So you imagine this King Abdelonymous, he's thinking, well, I have to show some degree of uh, compliance to, to this new, you know, this new Greek king who is now in charge, but I can't completely negate and get rid of, you know, the Persian Eastern influence of, of where I come from, of where I live. So it's how to marry those two themes together. And that's what the Alexander Sarkovkis does so successfully. So we're used to seeing, um, you know, Greek successes, uh, using Alexander's image to try and promote their own reign, promote their own story about how they fit into this, this part of history. And we're not so used to seeing examples of um, Eastern people and how they use Alexander's image to promote themselves, to establish their own standing in the world. And when I look at the Alexander sarcophagus through my research and through my interpretation, it's a very interesting artifact because to me what it represents is, you know, an Eastern king, a, a Phoenician king, who is using Alexander's image, because Alexander features quite prominently on this, to try and establish himself. He's using it to try and show these connections to Alexander, these positive connections, how he has been part of this tumultuous area of history. He's seen the war, he's seen the combat as evidenced by the um, battle scenes, but you know, through his interaction with Alexander, you know, proof of his reign, he's brought us from combat to a collaboration. You know, he's got a semblance of peace now has been established, so much so that Abdelonymous can go hunting with the very Alexander the Great, because beside Alexander in his wonderful Heracles helmet, we have a figure who's established to be Abdelonymous. So to me, it's an interesting um, and a wonderful artifact because it shows us how Alexander is perceived with regards to how he's using his own kind of cultural mythology to, you know, evidence himself as king, but it's also evidence of an Eastern king rather than a classical Greek king, which is what we're so used to, who is almost appropriating Alexander's image to create his own narrative. And I, I find that very fascinating about this object. 
Now, it is said that during the Wars of the Diadohoi, uh, many of the successors and warlords and various dynasts of the crumbling empire would attempt to use Alexander's image as part of their political propaganda and aspirations of legitimacy. Do you think that this assessment still holds up, or is this more of a retroactive creation from later authors and from us today? I think as a, as a general statement, um, the fact that the successors used Alexander's image as part of their political propaganda still um, holds up. Some An area that I've you know researched about this is through, is through coin portraits. So a lot of our, uh, uh, some of our most brilliant and beautiful images of Alexander really come from coin portraits. But what is interesting is that Alexander was the first mortal person to have his face put on coinage, but he didn't do it himself. His face was put onto his coins uh, by his successors. And I think of the um, beautiful coin portraits, for example, by um, Lysimachus, the one that really, you know, hones this image of Alexander with the ram's horns, which is an allusion to um, Zeus Amon in Egypt, uh, and the diadem, which is this allusion to, uh, you know, Hellenistic kingship. So they're really using Alexander's image almost the way that previous kings used the image of, of Heracles, of, you know, Athena and attributes of Athena. He's almost become their little deity that is important to them and a way to establish their own uh, lineage. But then after kind of Alexander sets the precedent of mortal faces on ancient coins, then the successors kind of have this leeway to start putting themselves on ancient coins. And that's when you start to see um, coins of Ptolemy with Ptolemy depicting his own face. Again, this portrait that is slightly Alexander-like in it being, um, you know, clean shaven, sort of youthful but you can see that there's a little bit more aging in the in the portraits of Ptolemy than there were um before but you definitely see the uh, the successors using I guess Alexander's precedent of being immortal on coinage and that's the stepping stone that they need in order to put themselves on coins the way that they depict Alexander also really depends on what is most important to them so Lysimachus again is using this ram's horn depiction but then when you look at um, the coins by Seleucus for example Seleucus is depicting Alexander with sort of allusions to I believe it's like panther skins and the panther skin is something that is associated with Dionysus which is associated with um, with India and Seleucus during his you know his time with Alexander was particularly important during the campaigns in India and so it makes more sense for Seleucus to create his royal imagery using something that is related to something that he had a more personal hand in, this being um, the campaigns in and around India. And they're all kind of, there's so much iconography to do with Alexander because he went so many places and did so many things that you can kind of cast him to whatever is most useful. Um, an interesting thing that we see that is kind of a slight departure from Alexander is when we get to the coins of Demetrius Polyorchetes. So Demetrius Polyorchetes, as I kind of briefly mentioned earlier, was a successor of almost the next generation. So he didn't actually go on um, campaign with Alexander. It, his father was the one who was campaigning with Alexander. So, but it was really during the wars of the, you know, the diadochs that he was getting involved in all this. And when he became um, king, when he chose to put on his portrait, he you know presented this Alexander-like um, persona. He used Alexander's own image in his earlier coins, but then as time goes on, he kind of starts to adapt his own image. 
So we get a sense that Alexander started off as the, you know, the, the premier image to use for the successors because of their relationship with him. But then as we move into the next generation of successors, Alexander becomes less important as an individual. And it's more about what symbols and what icons can you take from Alexander to then input into yourself. So it's kind of this next generation of successors where Alexander's image as Alexander as a person becomes slightly less important. And it becomes more about just using him as a as a symbol than as an individual. So I think it definitely um, holds true that he was part of their political propaganda. But I think as an individual king and as an individual person, he became less important. It became more about this mythologized symbol of Alexander and his attributes that then could then be taken off and applied to different people of different places at will, depending on what was most suitable. So true to an extent, but I definitely think that as, as time goes on, as an individual, he became less important. I feel as though that like those living in the Hellenistic period, I can never seem to escape Alexander's shadow, and I still find myself constantly returning to talk about him nearly 40 episodes and almost three years after starting my show. So I think we should stop our discussion here in the meantime. But I'd like to say thank you so much for joining me to talk about one of my favorite subjects ever. Uh, is there anything you would wish to plug, like social media or any upcoming projects you're currently working on? I mainly try and make summary threads, uh, talk about my research um, online. So I do that via my um, Twitter account, which you can find me at Agamegonon, which is quite a good pun that I'm uh, very proud of. Other than that, I'm just kind of an independent researcher at the moment. I'm trying to put forth some of my own um, articles, trying to get out there and get some of my research out there. So nothing, no huge projects to plug at the moment, but you can um, follow me online and I'm trying to get some of my articles, some of my short blog posts kind of polished up published so that's kind of a, a work in progress i'm hoping to get more work out there in 2021 that's kind of the goal this year well i'll make sure to include those links in the podcast description and in my episode notes along with a representation for the alexander sarcophagus for you all listeners to see at your own leisure and kind of follow along with with our discussion but uh in the meanwhile uh thank you once again for coming on to the show and for the rest of you you've been listening to the hellenistic age podcast <laughs>